Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. All right, welcome back to Behind the Knife's Oral Board Review Series. My name is Patrick Borjoff, and I'm joined today by Craig Brown. Craig is a general surgery resident at the University of Michigan, and he also happens to be one of the smartest people I know, so I'm thrilled to have him on the show today. Craig, you want to say hi? Yeah, sounds good. Um, thanks, everybody, for having me on here. I'm super excited. Good, good. Let's get started. Today, we're going to cover uh, the large intestine, and the score, uh, core diagnoses and conditions for the large intestine include appendicitis, C. diff, ischemic colitis, colon cancer, colon polyps, volvulus and obstruction, diverticulitis, GI bleeding, and ulcerative colitis. The advanced diseases and conditions include functional disorders of the intestine and polyposis syndromes. The core operations and procedures include appendectomy, partial colectomy, total and subtotal colectomy, colostomy, and colostomy closure. All right. Uh, one thing, so we're going to start here in a moment. One thing I want to uh, put in a actually not so shameless plug for a really good friend of mine's book. It's called Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. It's by Dr. Dave Fagenbaum. Uh, he, if you enjoy books by Atul Gawande or if you read When Breath Becomes Air, uh, this is something you would really enjoy. It is a absolutely incredible read. Uh, hopefully we can get a link to it in the show notes. I'd, I would recommend you check it out. It's uh, something that's pretty phenomenal. But uh, getting back to the show, we will start off with, what do you think, Craig, colon cancer will do? Yeah, sure. Okay. So for colon cancer, you talk about screening up front. So for average risk patients, we start screening at 50, typically stop around 75 years old. Colonoscopies performed every 10 years. Uh, for a patient who has a first-degree relative who had cancer, we're going to start screening 10 years prior to that diagnosis. Uh, alternatively, to colonoscopy, you have a CT scan every five years or an annual fecal occult blood test or fecal immunochemical testing perform this annually. Uh, in addition to that, uh, for IBD, um, typically we talk, that may kind of roll in here. We'll talk about ulcerative colitis separately, but just to mention here, you start screening the patient uh, annually with colonoscopies eight years after diagnosis. Uh, uh, for instance, for ulcerative colitis, eight years after diagnosis, Q1 year, uh, by, um, colonoscopies with circumferential biopsies. Uh, those biopsies are performed about every 10 centimeters for a total of at least 33 biopsies. Now, there are a couple of different types of polyps we should talk about. There's non-neoplastic polyps. Those include hyperplastic, mucosal, hamartoma, or inflammatory polyps. The ones we're most interested in from a surgical standpoint are uh, have the potential for to become neoplastic, and that includes adenomatous polyps. Those make up about 70% of neoplastic polyps. The other type, uh, the other more common type, is serrated polyps. And if you happen to have a board scenario in which you have the finding of an adenomatous polyp, you're going to want to repeat colonoscopy in approximately three years. Uh, so, Craig, in regards to, to colon cancer, how uh, might these patients present on the oral exam? What might questions stem include? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I think that uh, you just talked about 
quickly, one of them is that the patients will come after a screening colonoscopy. So you'll see a fair number of patients who come with a mass identified on the screen colonoscopy with no symptoms. But um, otherwise, in terms of these question stems, oftentimes they'll come in with occult anemia, uh, occasionally with, with known gastrointestinal bleeding. Uh, you'll often hear changes in bowel habits. The dreaded um, complaint of just vague weight loss is oftentimes uh, the question stem for colorectal cancer. And then also uh, new onset abdominal pain, especially in uh, elderly patients. Um, in terms of how to work up and, and kind of stage these things uh, if we suspect colon cancer, really um, the NCCN guidelines are kind of the go-to for this information. The first thing to always remember is we got to get a tissue diagnosis. So if you don't have a biopsy, make sure that you, uh, you know, generally this colonoscopy uh, obtained, but uh, that's the first step. The second thing to remember uh, is to evaluate for family history because this has implications for how we treat these patients. Um, the big ones to think about here, and I think we'll talk about this in a little bit, is uh, the uh, familial polyposis syndromes like FAP and then uh, hereditary non-polyposis colorectal cancer or Lynch syndrome. And so those patients, uh, there's a set of criteria within the NCCN guidelines that help people um, uh, kind of differentiate whether they're at risk. And then uh, there's testing available for that. So if, if you suspect that, really, you should think about getting a, a genetics uh, consultation for those patients. Um, in terms of how to first work up a patient who comes in, the, the way that this will be differentiated on the board is you got to make sure that they're not showing up acutely with an obstruction. So, uh, you know, don't forget about the ileocecal valve. Make sure that the patients uh, who have abdominal pain get evaluated to make sure they don't have a competent ileocecal valve and a, an effective closed-loop obstruction because those patients' treatment is emergent uh, as opposed to patients who have an incompetent ileocecal valve. Um, other things to remember with respect to workup and staging of these uh, cancers is always do a DRE. So these patients need an exam with a digital rectal um, as a part of their evaluation. In terms of biomarkers, there's really only two worth talking about. One is carcinoembryonic antigen or CEA, and the other is uh, CA199. So both of those should be drawn preoperatively. And that's uh, both because they can give you an idea uh, regarding risk of metastatic disease, but also they help with surveillance uh, in terms of postoperative uh, surveillance. Um, the kind of full metastatic staging is really done with a CT scan, so CT of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis. And then always remember, and this is, I cannot hammer this home enough, the patients who haven't identified um, colorectal cancer have got to have a complete colonoscopy completed because one common way to trip people up is to identify a mass on a sigmoidoscopy or via digital rectal exam. Those patients will come to the surgeon for consultation regarding surgery and people won't evaluate them. To, and those patients can have uh, pretty high rates actually of having um, uh, synchronous right-sided cancers as well or cancer anywhere else. So you got to make sure that they don't have a second primary and that is done through a, colon a complete colonoscopy. And then uh, finally, the other thing to remember about the NCCN guidelines is we got to refer these patients to a multidisciplinary tumor board because um, it's been shown improved outcomes. Uh, so that's pretty much it for workup and staging. Patrick, you want to talk about uh, treatment of localized disease? Sure, sure. And, and I want to go back on one thing. So what if, I, you know, the question stem, they say you can't complete your colonoscopy, uh, maybe it's too obstructed or you can't get to the rest of the colon. Another option is a CT uh, colonography as well, or even barium enema is a potential option to survey the rest of the colon before you take control. Sure. 
So in regards to localized disease, the easy thing about colorectal cancer is that the surgical treatment is, is key. So if uh, there are negative margins, if you think you can achieve neg negative margins, you go ahead with surgery. And that includes end block resections as needed as well. Now, if the patient is unresectable or they have metastatic disease, uh, we start with some neoadjuvant chemotherapy. That's typically Folfox. There's a lot of different options, but Folfox is probably a safe answer for the boards. You, uh, if asked, you need 12 lymph nodes, ideally, uh, in your specimen. So that includes a, a lower section that takes all of the, um, uh, as much mesentery as possible, essentially, uh, to get as many lymph nodes as possible. Now, if the patient presents and they have greater than stage 3 disease, uh, so at least they have positive lymph nodes, for instance, you're going to want to give uh, a neoadjuvant uh, chemotherapy in the form of Folfox as well. Um, uh, and, I, and actually, I said neoadjuvant. I meant adjuvant uh, uh, chemotherapy um, uh, as well. And so uh, if you do end up taking out the specimen and they have positive nodes, you're going to give adjuvant chemotherapy, and that's Folfox. And in regards to radiation, that's rarely used. That's not a key part of, of colon uh, cancer management, and so it's rarely, if, if ever, used. Uh, if, in regards to metastatic disease, the most common sites for colorectal cancer are the liver and the lung. And you can consider getting a PET scan uh, if you are working the patient up for surgery and you want to rule out any occult uh, disease elsewhere. Uh, in general, resection of metastatic disease should be performed uh, if you can get an R0 resection. Uh, the number of, of, of lesions uh, and the size of the lesions don't necessarily matter. So if you can safely get that tumor out, you want to do so. And the order of resection, whether it's the primary tumor or the MET first, doesn't necessarily matter. It's whatever makes sense for the patient. So the most common scenario would be a colorectal cancer plus liver METs. You can choose to do it in a staged fashion. You can choose to do it all at once. Uh, if you do it in a staged fashion, you can do liver first or colon first, whatever makes sense for the, the patient in the scenario. Uh, if there are numerous liver lesions or, or if these lesions are in difficult to resect areas, you can consider other treatments like RFA ablation, microwave ablation, or, or chemoembolization. Um, and uh, uh, all patients uh, with, uh, again, metastatic disease should get full FOX. And, and I didn't mention earlier, actually, is Avastin or Bevacizumab is, is another key component to that chemotherapy uh, regimen. Uh, so how about follow-up, uh, Craig? You, you, you've gotten through your whole question stem. You've taken the patient to the operating room, resected their colon cancer, and the uh, examiner wants to know how often you follow that patient up. Sure. Yeah, I think uh, the critical things to remember is that those patients need a physical exam and a history um, in conjunction with a CEA and a CT of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis every six months for the first two years, followed by the same workup. So physical exam. CEA and the CT chest, abdomen, and pelvis annually for three years. And then that's one component. The other part of it is that they need a colonoscopy at one year, again at three years, and then after that every five years for life. You want to talk uh, quick about familial syndromes? Yeah, yeah. So the familial syndromes on the, the score curriculum, the polyposis syndromes are considered advanced material, but we'll touch base on them. So the two main ones Craig mentioned already or Lynch syndrome and FAP. So, uh, so Lynch syndrome uh, or HNPCC is an autosomal dominant disease uh, related to uh, a mutation in the DNA mismatch repair gene, MMR. Uh, this can present often as right-sided cancers. Uh, the tissue stains will be positive for microsatellite instability or MSI. Uh, you can diagnose Lynch syndrome for the Amsterdam criteria. There's multiple cancers associated with it. The most common other cancer being endometrial. And for this, it's probably maybe one of the more relevant things. The annual colonoscopy for a patient with known Lynch syndrome should start at 25 years old and EGDs at 35 years old. 
And so these patients, in regards to surgical treatment, they can have iliorectal anastomoses or J pouches uh, created with subsequent monitoring. But probably the safest answer is a total proxicolectomy with end ileostomy, at least on the boards. In regards to FAP, uh, this is also an autosomal dominant disease. It's the APC gene. Uh, this is characterized by extensive intestinal adenomatous polyps, and there are numerous different extra intestinal manifestations that include cancers like thyroid cancer, brain tumors. This is also uh, where you see desmoid tumors, osteoma, epidermal cysts, etc. And for this, you want to start colonoscopies at 10 years old if you have that diagnosis known in a, in a child, and then start EGDs at 25 years old. So going back really quick, Lynch syndrome, start colonoscopies at 25 and EGDs at 35. FAP, start colonoscopies at 10 years old and EGDs at 25 years old. And if the patient has any uh, uh, signs of dysplasia on their biopsies of these numerous polyps or cancer for that matter, or they're symptomatic, they should have a total proctocolectomy. Um, again, they can have, I guess, technically ileorectal anastomosis or J-pouches depending on the burden of disease in the rectum, but safe answer is a proctocolectomy with an end ileostomy. All right, I think that wraps up the colon, colon cancer. We can move on to... Uh, rectal cancer. Craig, how are patients with rectal cancer going to present? Yeah, so, you know, I think um, I'll do my best to try to differentiate a little bit in terms of uh, colon cancer, rectal cancer, because I think the two can be confused, and even clinically they can be confused. But um, the reality is, is that most rectal cancer uh, symptoms are not that different from colon cancer, and that can be uh, most primarily a change in bowel habits. Uh, you guys have heard the classic, you know, pencil-thin stools, um, rectal bleeding, um, can be the other way. And then, uh, you know, the vague kind of symptoms that we talked about before in terms of colon cancer. I think what's important here is how to differentiate colon cancer from rectal cancer. On the boards, make sure that you guys understand the way to differentiate the two is that in order to be defined as rectal cancer, the cancer or the mass has to be below the anterior perineal reflection. And that's specifically determined on the cross-sectional imaging. Um, you know, in terms of the rectum is generally considered to be about 12 centimeters. Uh, and so sometimes that can be useful from a colonoscopy perspective in terms of measuring, but really it comes down to the cross-sectional imaging. Uh, in terms of workup and staging, we'll talk about that quick. It's really not all that different from colon cancers. They need a completion colonoscopy, again, for the same reasons as colon cancer. They need a CEA drawn full metastatic workup is CT chest abdomen pelvis. And then the difference here is the inclusion of pelvic MRI as the gold standard, not pelvic ultrasound. Uh, and the reason was that that's uh, important in terms of staging, uh, both T and N staging. Uh, and then here, really, these patients benefit, excuse me, from referral to a multidisciplinary team. Um, in terms of treatment, Patrick, you want to talk quick about that? Yeah, so this is another cancer where knowing the T stages is, 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 is probably necessary. So if you have T1 disease that invades the submucosa, uh, you can talk about a transanal excision. If you have T1 disease that invades submucosa or T2 disease that invades the muscularis propria and no spread to the lymph nodes, these can't, people, patients can go straight to surgery, LAR or APR. Note that T3 disease is invasion of the perirectal tissue. This is stage two. Uh, this would require neoadjuvant treatment. So if the disease extends beyond the muscularis propria and or there's positive lymph nodes, 
then these patients need neoadjuvant chemo RT. So that's probably the most of most of the patients that they're going to be presented on the board. So again, if it that T score goes be if the the tumor goes beyond the muscularis propria and into the perirectal tissue, or if there's positive nodes, you're going to suggest neoadjuvant chemo RT, and that's five FU with fifty point four gray total of radiation. Uh, if once you complete that ra uh, radiation treat the chemo radiation, you want to restage the patient, and then you move on to an LAR. Uh, or APR, and, and in, in a patient who's been treated, treated and uh, radiated, uh, and for low colon, uh, ana a colorectal anastomosis, it's probably safe to talk about uh, doing a diverting loop ileostomy. It's really probably the correct thing in real life too. Um, typically, surgery happens about eight weeks after neoadjuvant chemo treatment, uh, and uh, depending on the response, these patients may need adjuvant chemotherapy as well. This is also full Fox. Um, I want to go back up in regards to the the very early T1 submucosa, so T1, N0, M0, only into the submucosa tumor. If you're going to talk about a transrectal excision, they have to meet some criteria. Tumor should be less than three centimeters, less than one-third circumference of the bowel, within eight centimeters or something similar from the anal verge. should be mobile and not fixed. You should be able to obtain negative margins or greater than three millimeter margins specifically, and there should be no carry stuff on the histology like lymphovascular or perineal. Uh, a perineural invasion. Um, now, how about uh, correct surgical treatment? Let's talk about that briefly. Uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, you, you kind of hinted at the, that really the choice comes down to uh, low anterior resection or uh, abdominal perineal resection here. And it really comes down to what you think you can do safely. Um, the kind of recommendations that are often given is that you need a gross distal, distal margin of at least two centimeters. So if you're dealing with a low, low rectal cancer that you don't think you can get below with an LAR, the correct answer is APR here. Um, the That being said, the actual definition for a negative margin in terms of the pathology is equal to or greater than one millimeter. So we, you know, there's kind of this discrepancy in terms of surgical plan versus actual pathology, but uh, know that discrepancy because it can have implications for how you want to do the operation. Yeah, the, actually, Craig, I'm going to interrupt you for a second. Go ahead. That if, there's, if you're close to the sphincter complex or invades the sphincter complex in any fashion, like you're committed to an APR um, uh, on the boards, uh, yeah, you know, definitely. very, very low resections or these super low resections that we may do in practice, uh, again, probably shouldn't be uh, discussed on boards, the safe answer is an APR. Yeah, that's a great point, Patrick. Um, the uh, point you made earlier is still true here. Uh, minimum 12 lymph nodes is the recommendation. And the way that that actually manifests is that we're looking for a, a complete mesorectal excision here, especially for these APRs. So we really need to take the entire mesentery to try to maximize the number of lymph nodes we can get for staging purposes. The other thing you talked about, which I think is really worth uh, highlighting here, is the consideration of a diverting loop ileostomy. A substantial number of these patients uh, have leaks, and they can be catastrophic. So the safe answer here for the boards is diverting loop ileostomy for these low uh, anastomoses. And then one last point to talk about is marking for a stoma in the pre-op area. So um, these patients, if you, you know, if you don't know how to mark for stoma, um, it's worth looking up because it's something that drastically changes these patients' outcomes and also is a great point for the boards. Uh, Patrick, you want to talk about follow-up? Yeah, yeah, very similar to colon cancer. So we're going to do a physical exam, get a CEA, and perform a CT scan of the chest, abdomen, pelvis every six months for two years. And then that'll be stretched out to annually for the next three years. And colonoscopy should occur within one year of surgery and then again three years later. And then 
after that every five years. All right, that wraps up rectal cancer. Let's talk about anal, uh, anal squamous cell carcinoma. Um, sure, yeah. Right. Yeah, you want to get us started on that? Talk about some of the epidemiology yeah. and what, what these uh, risk factors for patients uh, for anal squamous cell carcinoma. Yeah, really what it comes down to is, is risk for HPV. So, we, you know, we know just a lot of the understanding around anal squamous cell cancer has changed with uh, uh, understanding around HPV. And so things that put people at risk for contracting HPV are going to increase their risk for anal squamous cell cancer. So uh, we know that patients who are female have higher rates of uh, HPV infections and therefore anal squamous cell cancer. Uh, in addition to ha having a known uh, infection with HPV, Lifetime number of sexual partners is correlated. Having genital warts, again, because of the relationship with HPV. Uh, actually, cigarette smoking is a huge risk factor, as is uh, receiving anal intercourse. And then um, be things that cause immunosuppression can put you at higher risk for converting, basically, HPV-infected tissue to uh, anal squamous cell cancer. And those things are basically any reason you could have chronic immunosuppression, uh, for instance, if you were taking immunosuppressive medications, or patients who have HIV. And they often um, uh, correlate with CD4 count and that sort of thing. So um, any of those things are risk factors. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you may not be presented with a squamous cell carcinoma, a positive biopsy, for instance, you can have things like low-grade squamous intraepithelial lesions, which is L-cell, or high-grade squamous intraepithelial lesions, H-cell. Uh, this is uh, confusing to me. <laughs> Honestly, even the more I read about it, the more I get confused. But if you have that, that's not these things are not yet cancer. It's part of the progression to uh, anal uh, squamous cell carcinoma. But these earlier stage uh, uh, abnormalities in the epithelium can be treated with topical agents like topical acid or imiquim, uh, imiquimod cream or even laser or coagulation ablation. And uh, there's a lot of different recommendations, but they need frequent monitoring and should be followed up in clinic. Now, if we have a diagnosis of, of squamous cell cancer, we're going to work and work up the, these patients and stage them with a CT scan of the chest, abdomen, pelvis, and a, and a pelvic MRI to look for local METs to uh, the uh, local, the local lymph nodes, inguinal nodes, and whatnot. Um, Craig, what about treatment? Yeah, it's you know, it's it's really interesting. Things um, have changed a lot with the institution of the NIGRA protocol. So that's probably something you guys remember from uh, even from your surgery shelf. But really, it comes down to um, chemo radiation, even for locally advanced disease. It turns out the cure rates are really high. Something like eighty to ninety-five percent of patients have uh, a complete response with these NIGRA protocol uh, regimens, and and that consists of. Um, uh, fluorouracil and mitomycin, and then radiation uh, to the tumor and the inguinal lymph nodes for total 54 grays. So uh, again, cure rates are pretty substantial, and surgery is almost never the answer for these people. It turns yeah. out that yeah, go ahead. I want to mention too, in regards to treatment, uh, the this, the actual squamous cell cancer regresses pretty slowly, uh, and it can continue to regress long after you actually complete the chemo radiation course, uh, and so. You have to give it some time. Uh, if you have a patient that comes back a couple weeks later and um, they have, whether it's a biopsy or whatever, signs of, of, of ongoing disease, you actually need uh, to wait at least 12 weeks after, roughly 12 weeks after finishing treatment uh, to determine what kind of response the patient had. And that response is actually via digital rectal exam, not imaging, uh, interestingly enough. And these patients should follow up every six months uh, for a total of five years. And at that point, six months later, get their first CT scan. 
Now, if they don't respond, that it was when, you know, don't respond after 12 weeks. Uh, that's when you think about doing an APR uh, and and um, or they or if the patients have recurrent disease. And there's really actually no indications for doing a repeat nigro protocol. You're not going to redo that chemo radiation uh, regimen. Yeah. All right. Let's go on with to perianal disease um, and start with perianal abscess. How do these patients present, Craig? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, if you've gone through general surgery residency, you've seen plenty of these patients, but really it comes down to just rectal pain. Um, these patients can get really sick, especially if they have some sort of um, uh, immunosuppression or something like that. They can actually uh, present in, in septic shock. Um, the treatment for that obviously is more emergent than the kind of run-of-the-mill uh, perianal abscess that you're going to see. It's important to rule out Crohn's disease because a lot of these patients uh, who have perianal Crohn's disease uh, have recurrent abscesses, and the treatment's a little bit different. Um, in terms of kind of how to categorize these perianal abscesses, they really can be as simple as, this, you know, a small perianal uh, abscess that doesn't really involve uh, any of the surrounding structures. It can involve the sphincter complex. We call that an intersphincteric uh, perianal abscess. The, it can actually be in the ischiorectal space. So that's called an ischiorectal abscess. And then even complicated ones can actually be uh, above the levators, and so that's a, called a supraelevator abscess. Those are uh, particularly difficult to diagnose, uh, specifically on physical exam because they can be so high up in the pelvis. And so really CT scan is kind of the, the um, way that you'll end up finding a lot of those. Uh, these patients oftentimes are in a ton of pain and in, you know, doing a good physical exam is really difficult in these patients. So sometimes they benefit from even just, um, uh, going to the operating room earlier rather than later. Yeah. And so, you know, if I, going back, if they have a real superficial abscess, uh, it's particularly a perianal abscess, um, uh, that's uh, not deeper and involving, uh, significant the issue rectal or, or deeper spaces, they can be drained in the ED. And but beyond that, though, these patients are typically taken to the operating room for exam or anesthesia. Uh, you can do it uh, in a prone uh, or in the lithotomy position. I, I like to do it prone. And when you talk about draining these patients, you want to make sure you note that you provide an adequate excision of, of skin so that the, the skin doesn't close up immediately. So uh, typically an elliptical incision. Uh, that'll stay open for some time to allow for drainage of that infection. Uh, if you are going to pack the abscess, typically you pack once and uh, have the patient take it out in 24 to 48 hours. Uh, you, uh, in general, don't need to ask the patients to pack uh, or have a family member, a friend, pack at home. Um, in addition, you, if you have a clear fistula track, you, you tend not, not to want to do an fistulotomy acutely. Wait till the uh, the inflammation dies down. Just place a seton at that initial uh, surgical treatment. And in general, we don't give antibiotics uh, for perianal abscesses unless you are concerned that the patient is is frankly septic or they have some kind of immunosuppressed uh, condition. And then finally, uh, for fistula and ano, uh, there's multiple different types of treatments and includes fistulotomy. So if it's a very superficial uh, of fistula tract, and it contains only the internal sphincter or part of the internal sphincter, that patient may be a good candidate for fistulotomy. The other uh, treatments include endorectal advancement flap or something called the lift procedure, which is ligation of an intersphincteric tract. And then last but not least is fistula plugs. They don't, I should probably say that it is least, uh, fistula plugs, they don't work very well. Less than 50% of the time uh, are they effective. 
And finally, don't use cutting cetons. That's a thing of the past. Uh, we don't uh, recommend that. And, and I wouldn't mention yeah. that. Real quick, Patrick, the other thing, too, I want to um, just mention here is that it's acutely around the time of a perianal abscess, it's okay to not go searching for a fistula because if the area is all inflamed and uh, you can actually end up creating fistula tracts there. So it's entirely reasonable to pack and have the patient come back, uh, you know, weeks later when they've resolved their abscess and then do uh, an exam to try to look for a fistula tract. Yeah, good point. Um kind of other perianal abscess or sorry, perianal diseases. We're talking about uh, um, anal fissure is the one that comes up a lot. This one, I think the, in terms of board questions, probably going to be pretty superficial, but really it presents as this painful, almost always posterior midline um, fissure. And really if it's not in the posterior midline, you got to think about Crohn's in these patients, Patrick. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and for treatment, for uh, the standard treatment for anal fissure, start simple, uh, get the patient hydrated, I recommend fiber. There is medical options, including topical nitroglycerin or calcium channel blockers. They don't work very well. The nitroglycerin causes a bunch of headaches. Uh, you can use Botox. Uh, Botox could be useful for a very bad surgical candidate or for someone who already has uh, incontin incontinence, and you're injecting that Botox right into the internal sphincter. Uh, the definitive treatment uh, is a lateral internal sphincterotomy. And to do this, you want to identify that plane between the internal and external sphincter and work your way between that plane and transect the internal sphincter. Uh, you can do a complete transection or one other rule of thumb is you can trans transect the internal sphincter to the depth of the fissure. So the same, the if the fissure is one centimeter long, you can do one centimeter transection of the internal uh, uh, sphincter. And uh, if, if the patient has good, uh, if they're a good candidate, meaning they don't have issues with incontinence leading up to the surgery, uh, they can be quoted to have a less than 5% incontinence rate after this procedure. Uh, how about uh, hemorrhoids? Yeah, let's talk quick about uh, hemorrhoids. You know, really, they, we kind of divide them into internal uh, and external hemorrhoids, internal being proximal to the dentate line, external being distal to the dentate line. They can actually be mixed, so patients can have an internal and an external component. The vast majority of the time, these present with bleeding, uh, pruritus, and specifically pain for these external ones. Uh, it's always important to get a colonoscopy in these patients. Oftentimes, this is how they'll present to uh, seek care. And so it can be an opportunity to get a screen colonoscopy, but also can be helpful in terms of evaluating their hemorrhoid pathology. Um, the vast majority of these can be treated with just medical treatment. So really fiber supplementation, making sure the patients are hydrated. They can take sitz baths, which can help uh, in terms of the discomfort. And then really topical lidocaine can be a reasonable choice, too, for these patients. Um, because a lot of this is, you know, stems from uh, straining uh, with hard stools and constipation. So really a lot of the stuff is focused on that. Um, there are some kind of non-surgical but procedural options, too. So patients who fail these medical treatments can undergo uh, rubber band ligation or sclerotherapy in the office, actually. They don't even need to go to the operating room. Um, but, Patrick, do you want to talk quick about uh, surgical treatments? Yeah, yeah. So, in, in general, if you patient comes up with a painful external hemorrhoid, so a painful thrombose external hemorrhoid, they typically don't require surgical management unless it's an acute presentation, so maybe something like less than 24 hours. Uh, you might want to consider operating on them. And if you do, uh, this could, well, an operating, could, it could be a bedside procedure in the ED or in the OR. And if you do operate, it's probably best to excise the whole, or, or that whole uh, hemorrhoid uh, as opposed to just evacuating the clot. But that's, that's up for debate, whatever your preference is. Uh, 
And in regards to performing a true internal, so if you have an internal hemorrhoid that is bothersome uh, to the patient, you evaluate them, you determine they need surgery, this is a, a core uh, a surgical skill according to the SCORE curriculum. And so to perform an, a hemorrhoidectomy, I would recommend putting the position in the prone jackknife position. Uh, there's lots of ways to do it, but uh, uh, I would grasp that hemorrhoid, uh, uh, pull towards myself, put it on tension, mark out the area of mucosa I want to take. And using a combination of electrocautery and sharp dissection, take that redundant mucosa uh, uh, right off of the internal sphincter, taking care not to injure the in uh, internal sphincter at the distal margin of that hemorrhoid. I would then clamp it, tie it off, uh, and use that same suture to run the mucosa closed. Uh, be an absorbable suture. Uh, and it's important to note that you don't want to risk take too much hemorrhoidal tissue or too many hemorrhoids uh, such that you might narrow uh, the anal canal or interfere interfere with the patient's uh, uh, function or sphincter function of following surgery. Great. Well, that kind of um, finishes up for benign uh, perianal disease. You want to talk quick about uh, medically refractory ulcer uh, ulcerative colitis? Yeah, yeah. So, Craig, if a... In, in general, if they're giving you an ulcerative colitis patient uh, as part of the STEM, what are some of the general considerations you want uh, you want to make in regards to these patients? Like things like how sick they are. Yeah, sure. So you know, really coming down to severity is is how we as surgeons get involved with these patients. So you want to make sure that you evaluate all the things that can help us determine the severity of illness in these patients specifically. They should be, uh, you should evaluate their hemodynamics. So sometimes these patients will show up in fulminant colitis and be hemodynamically unstable. Other signs of really severe disease include uh, weight loss, anemia can be a particularly important marker, overall nutrition status, uh, duration of steroid or even biologic uh, medical treatments. And then really the other stuff is focused around um, how things look in terms of colonoscopy and CT imaging. The one thing to remember about these patients is when they show up and you get consulted on these patients, you got to rule out C. diff, CMV, and then make sure that they actually have ulcerative colitis and not concomitant Crohn's disease. So um, those things tend to muddy the waters a little bit, especially the C. diff and CMV, those things. The treatment's different, uh, and also it can make things seem more severe than they actually are. Uh, one, yeah, this can get really complicated, so I think here's a great time to... Um, to key everybody into the importance of a multidisciplinary approach with GI. And the reason why is because these patients, uh, the medical decision-making can get really complicated and it's best to have them involved early, especially if you're thinking about surgery uh, to help make decisions about biologic medications or steroid pulsing and that sort of thing uh, and try to get them involved before you end up taking them to the uh, operating room emergently. Yeah. And I, I mentioned some about screening. I mentioned this before. I just feel like this is something that might be asked on the board. Screening begins eight years after diagnosis. You do uh, you screen with circumferential uh, colonoscopy with circumferential biopsies. Uh, biopsies are taken every ten centimeters for thirty three or more biopsies. You can also use chromoendoscopy, uh, and these scopes are performed annually after that uh, at that eight year mark after the diagnosis. Uh, now, if the patient is not you know toxic, they're not super unstable. Um, uh, you want to have a have a discuss or uh, you want to have a discussion with the patient, and you want to outline uh, a surgical management, and and that can include talking about the difference between things like an ileostomy or an ilioanal anastomosis. And if you are considering offering the patient an ilioanal anastomosis, you want to talk about things like pouchitis, um, how frequently they may have bowel movements, uh, and what the endoscopic monitoring uh, of the rectal cuff, you know, what's required in that. 
Um, now, surgery could consist of a single-stage approach with a proctocolectomy and end ileostomy. It could also be a two-stage approach with a proctocolectomy and ilioanal J-pouch anastomosis and diverting loop ileostomy with subsequent takedown. Or it could be a, a three-stage approach, especially if they're sick, and that may require a total abdominal colectomy with end ileostomy, followed by an ilioanal J-pouch anastomosis and diverting loop ileostomy, and then the subsequent takedown of that diverting loop ileostomy. So, uh, uh, Craig, what if the, the, the patient's sick? I mean, they're just sick, dynamically yeah. unstable, their hemoglobin keeps dropping, they have massive bloody bowel movements, uh, they've been on steroids for some time, they've been losing weight. What do you do in that, in that setting? Their yeah, the... the the boring answer here is emergent total abdominal colectomy. And I think the, the key point is don't get taken down the rabbit hole of trying to do any of these other sort of fancy approaches, but really get the patient on the table and off the table. And that answer is total abdominal colectomy with end ileostomy. Don't forget that these patients are oftentimes and have been on chronic steroids. So think about stress dose steroids. And then these patients are almost always chronically malnourished. So you can consider uh, TPN kind of earlier rather than later in these patients. Um, important to note that ilioanal anastomosis is not listed on the score operations. Uh, so really the focus here is total abdominal colectomy with end ileostomy. All right, let's uh, uh, gonna wrap it up and uh, get us started on a C. diff as uh, one of the, the core diseases and conditions. Yeah, C. diff um, is really interesting. Things have changed a lot recently. Um, so really, C. diff is, is this uh, bacterial infection that colonizes the GI tract. It's particularly prevalent after antibiotic use. In fact, the biggest risk factor is recent antibiotic, antibiotic exposure. Uh, the presentation is almost always watery, diarrhea, abdominal pain. Oftentimes, they have a leukocytosis. And then if they're really sick, they can have signs of uh, shock. So they can have acute kidney injury and things like that. Um, the diagnosis can be really uh, kind of confusing. Do you want to talk about that quick, Patrick? Yeah, I'm going to leave it super uh, not confusing and say that you can do a stool test for a toxin uh, and a gene or both. Uh, certainly, it's a slam dunk if you have both toxin and gene positive. Uh, but from that, uh, you mentioned things like an AKI and, and, and whatnot, leukocytosis. And so these patients are, are categorized as either non-severe, severe, or fulminant C. diff. So non-severe disease is a white count less than 15 and a creatinine less than 1.5. Severe disease is a white count greater than 15 and a creatinine greater than 1.5. And fulminant is when they're actually sick with hypotension, shock, megacolon, and ileus. So, uh, Craig, what are the medical regimens that, that uh, we need to know for treatment of C. diff? Yeah, th this is really important because these things have changed probably over the course of, of residency for a lot of people taking the boards this year. Uh, it used to be that IV flagell and PO flagell were used a lot, but really the treatment from uh, the guidelines have changed. So for non-severe C. diff, as outlined before, uh, with low white count, no increased creatinine, those patients really should get PO vancomycin or Alternatively, they can get fadoxamycin, and the treatment course is 10 days. In severe patients, it's really not that different. It, it, the categorization between non-severe and severe really just helps us kind of prognosticate these patients, but it should still be POVANC or fadoxamycin. And then fulminant C. diff, as described before, with hypotension, shock, ileus, megacolon, those patients should get POVANC, IV flagell, and rectal vanc. Kind of you throw the whole book at them. In terms of Recurrent C. diff, this is a really hard problem to treat, but generally speaking, we should have some uh, infectious disease consultation here, and oftentimes they'll taper or pulse POVANC, and then kind of down the line, you can consider fecal transplant in these patients. Um, how about surgical treatment? 
Yeah. So it's really only an, one answer here. If you have a six C. diff patient with uh, uh, fulminic colitis, they need a total abdominal colectomy with endoleostomy. That's it. Uh, do not do any kind of uh, uh, ostomies with antigrade flushes of vancomycin or other colon preserving surgeries. Uh, do a total abdominal colectomy with an end uh, ileostomy. Now, one more uh, a quick topic, just really quick to review sigmoid and cecal volvulus. Uh, uh, this is something that comes up relatively frequently. 75% of volvulus are sigmoid, 20% are cecal. Uh, the sigmoid uh, volvulus occurs when the, mesen the, the sigmoid twists around the mesentery and it occurs with redundant sigmoid and, and you have a narrow mesenteric base. Um, now, a cecal uh, vascule occurs when the proximal cecum folds on itself, and that's often in the anterior. It folds anteriorly onto itself. Uh, you can also have some degree, uh, a true cecal volvulus as well. Uh, and this present most commonly in patients in the 60 to 80 year old range. They often have a history of constipation or uh, and or laxative use. And the on X-ray, you're going to see this bent inner tube appearance uh, of, with the apex in the right upper quadrant uh, for sigmoid. Uh, volvulus. You'll have this bird's beak sign, and if you see a, have a CT scan, it'll be a mesenteric swirl. Now, if the patient comes in and they're not toxic, um, they uh, uh, are stable and they have a sigmoid volvulus, the recommendation is that you decompress these folks uh, and uh, from above with an NG tube and then endoscopic decompression uh, from below uh, with a, uh, a rectal tube as well. And Oftentimes, these patients, if they're good surgical candidates, should get an elective uh, sigmoidectomy. Uh, recurrence rates are up to 50%. And so during that admission or, or shortly thereafter, you could offer that patient an elective uh, a sigmoidoscopy, of course, with full colonoscopy in advance to rule out any uh, a cancer or other uh, a signs of badness. Um, if the patient is toxic, if they have signs of peritonitis or they're sick, that's a full-on sigmoidectomy. Uh, the difference with with sequel of ovulus versus sigmoid is that you don't try to decompress the patient uh, endoscopically. Uh, the success rate is low. So even if the patient's not sick and they have sequel of ovulus, they go to the OR uh, for a uh, right hemisphere or ileosigmoid resection, or excuse me, ileosigmoid resection. Um, all right, Craig, I think that that actually wraps it up for our uh, review of the uh, large intestine and uh, anorectal uh, topics for the oral boards. Uh, I uh, want to thank you for joining us. Uh, I appreciate you you jumping on. Yeah, super grateful to be here. Everything I learned about surgery, I learned from Patrick Georgia. So happy <laughs> to be involved. That's a lie. Uh, but uh, <laughs> again, thanks. I hope uh, again. I hope everyone's getting a lot out of this. Uh, you know, as always, dominate the day. Until next time, dominate the day.